if you've been with us these past three or four weeks, we've been talking a lot about Advent. <clears throat> and just as a review, the theme, the series for uh, these sermons is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Like you saw the shirt Tyler showed, and if you want one, you can buy it. And uh, it would be a good last minute. Uh, what's it called? Stocking stuffer. Stocking stuffer. That's what it is. Um, I'm probably going to do that. But yeah, we've been going through the prophets, and really our hope is to, to shine light on what did the prophets see? What did they talk about that brought this hope for the Israelites? And reveal, what did it reveal about the redemption plan of God regarding this person called Jesus? And so we went through Isaiah, we, we touched on Jeremiah, and some on Daniel. And so today, uh, we're going to do all the other of those prophets, all of them. It's just going to be a long sermon. <clears throat> so buckle up. Take about 2,000 years, I feel like, to go through that. You think I'm kidding. <laughs> but I want to start with a verse from Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In, in other words, all prophecy uh, is, is to tell us about Jesus. It all testifies of Jesus. And so today we're going to try to reveal some Jesus more before Christmas. And I do want to start actually by sharing a testimony, speaking of this verse. Um, so the testimony is this, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, my family and I were traveling to Dallas for the second half of Thanksgiving break, and <clears throat> we were spending time with family there, and then on Saturday, we're gearing up to head back to College Station, this is, yeah, three weeks ago, and on our drive back, uh, you know, it's the whole family I'm driving, my wife is seven months pregnant, the passenger seat, uh, I have Adeline behind me in the backseat, three and a half year old, and then <clears throat> our son Liam, who's two years old. Uh, and it had been raining that day, so the roads were slippery. And we're heading down I-45 South. And <clears throat> just to get to the details and not spend too much time on this, we, I start to feel the back tires start to hydroplane. And so I get a little nervous, as you would. And uh, it all happened in a blink. We end up start spinning, and we end up flipping and crashing into the ditch. Um, so it was a very scary moment, to say the least. But here we are. We're okay. <laughs> I guess that's part of the testimony. The testimony is, miraculously, no one is hurt. Like, we're totally fine. The most damage done was Cheryl had, like, a bruise on her arm from the airbags. Um, but she's fine. We checked, uh, went to the doctor the next day. Baby's fine. Everyone is fine. And so when I think about that, I'm like, okay, I could be overwhelmed with the how close or what could have happened. Just like if there were a car right here, that would have been a different story or all the different scenarios. Um, but I just want to share that testimony to testify about Jesus, not necessarily about his faithfulness in protecting us, although he did. He chose to do that, and I'm super thankful. Um, but in his faithfulness, period. Because I think... I don't want us to think that his faithfulness is dependent on how pleasant or how hard life is or how long or short life is. That's irrelevant. <laughs> his faithfulness is actually what he can do within a man's heart during that lifetime, which life nor death can do. And in that moment after the crash, I, you know, I was startled, but when I realized everyone's okay, I felt this uh, confident assurance by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that whether we lived or died, we were the Lord's. It, it really, it almost didn't matter at that moment, just that, <clears throat> that peace that followed. And so the, the anchor of hope held fast. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, this anchor of hope. Like it says in Hebrews 6, I want to read this scripture to you, verse 18. Since we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This hope is an anchor for the soul. So it was that hope of what was to come or what could have come that day that anchored us, me and my family, in that, that very traumatic, dramatic experience. It anchored us. But again, it wasn't a hope that, not, uh, that nothing bad would happen to us because it could have happened to us. And I don't want us to think, well, if something bad happens to us, I'm going to blame God. It's like, no. But the hope was in the inevitable outcome, if that makes sense. Meaning whether it was that day and we went on to be the Lord or whether it's the final day. The inevitable outcome is we get to stand before Jesus. We get to be in the presence of our beloved Savior. That hope is an anchor. If it happened that day, fine. If it happens tomorrow, fine. If it happens when he returns, even better. (laughs) But it anchors us. And so we don't live for just today. We live for that final day. Because we, I mean, I'm going to tell you, today might not come tomorrow. We don't know that. And so we live for that day. So the takeaway for today is that the spirit of prophecy that testifies about Jesus would anchor us and give us hope to see us to the very end. So a little dramatic start, but hey, we'll, we'll, let's talk about prophecy now, now that we're in it. Let's talk about prophecy. So the Bible, Bible gives us a very clear definition of what a prophet is. I know we've been sharing that word, and I realize, like, does everyone even understand that? So just real quickly, I want to put a definition to the office and the function of a prophet according to the scriptures. In Exodus verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. In Exodus 4, verse Uh, 15, he says, so you are to speak to him, to Aaron, and to put words in his mouth. And so a prophet is simply someone who speaks for God, very simply, where the words of God are put in their mouth and we can hear what the the ideas, the thoughts of God. And it's important to understand this simply because about a third of the Bible is prophecy. So like a big chunk of this thing is prophecy. And through that, we can see very directly what God is saying to his people. Uh, actually, the, the fulfillment of these prophecies is actually one of the greatest uh, phenomenon in all of history. It's incredible. Meaning, if, if you know anything about or if you've heard anything about the law of simple or compound probability, this is my engineering background coming into play, uh, you would know that the amount of prophecies concerning Jesus come to fulfillment uh, being chance is impossible. Like, it's not a coincidence. The way that works is, let's say, like, when a simple prediction is made and has one feature, then you're either right or wrong, right? So if I, pre- for example, if I predict, uh, let's beginning of football season, that the Aggies win their first game, All right. uh, amen, <laughs> they either win or they lose, right? That's like, it's a 50-50 chance that what I prophesied comes to pass. But if I add a second element, a second feature to the prophecy, well, now it's compounded, meaning if I predict they win the first two games, well, now they could win one, lose the next one. They could lose the first one, win the second one. They could lose them both, or they can win them both. So now it's one in four chance of it happening. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I say that to say uh, the amount of prediction and prophecy regarding Jesus is so definite that, and it has so many distinct features that the chances of it happening outside of divine orchestration, yeah. it's zero. Yeah. It is, it, I mean, uh, I, I feel like you, you, just a scientist could look at that and be like, Oh, okay, it's real. I don't know any of the details, but for that to happen, for the prophecies to be fulfilled in the exactness that they were, there is no 
coincidence. That is divine. That is a miracle. And so fulfilled prophecy truly is one of the greatest miracles the world has ever seen and ever will see. And so God has given us his scripture with all that prophecy. It's all written in here, right here for us to know. Like we can actually know what's going to happen. It's pretty neat. But we don't just want to know it for knowledge's sake. So we can just have knowledge and then share it because we want knowledge. But we actually have that prophecy because it gives us hope. That's what this message is about. That's what today is about. That's what Christmas is about, I'd argue. It's about having hope. That hope would anchor us in this life as we wait the coming of Christ. And that is the message I pray we receive this morning. That same hope that filled the Israelites' heart as they waited for this coming Messiah would also fill our hearts as we wait for our coming Messiah. So we're going to look at a lot of prophecies today, all of them, like I said. Uh, And, you know, uh, Christ, if if you look through the Bible and you read it, uh, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you find Jesus nearly on every page. He's in all of the scriptures. Jesus said this about himself in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. He was resurrected. He's speaking to some of his disciples. And he says this. And he said to them, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and come into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. And then later in verse 44, he says this. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He honored the word of God. (laughs) And And the apostles carried that same reverence for the word of God. Paul even writes in Romans 15, verse four, he says, for whatever was written in earlier times, talking about the Old Testament scriptures, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There it is. Hope. It is written for us to have hope. And so what is written in scriptures about Jesus is is to be that source of encouragement, that source of endurance, that source of perseverance, and that source of hope for us today. So let's look at some of what scripture has to say about Christ. And it really doesn't take long if you open up like page one of the Bible to start to see how scripture testifies about Jesus. Even from the very beginning of the Bible, God reveals to us that there would be this central figure that would come and bring restoration to all things. The moment humanity lost paradise through Adam and Eve's disobedience was the moment God promised that there would be a seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. I mean, it's like in the first page. Scripture immediately testifies that a Messiah would come. And all throughout Israel's history, if you keep on reading, we see glimpses of this one man, this, this promised Messiah who would come and save us from our fallen state, from that disobedience, from that separation from God. We see glimpses of it, story after story, book after book. And when we get to the prophets, which is what we're focused on, we see the, probably the most clear picture of the coming Messiah. And as the servants of God, these prophets peered into the future, they saw with great detail how things would unfold regarding this promised Messiah, the Son of God. And so Isaiah actually would start it off and see when he, you know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but there's just a lot of, in Isaiah about Jesus, so there's a lot more to talk about. But when he looked, and he's, I'm imagining he's in prayer and just getting before the Lord, 
And then all of a sudden he looks and he sees into the future and he sees this great light shining upon people who walk in darkness. Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. And as he gazed, he sees that a child was to be born, that a son was going to be given in chapter nine, verse six. And with growing amazement, again, this is me using my imagination. I, I see him just all of a sudden, these, these names start to enter into his heart as he's seeing this child. And all of a sudden he sees that this child was to be born. This name comes to his heart. Wonderful. That he was, to, he was going to be called Wonderful. And that is a perfect description of Jesus. He was wonderful. From the details of his birth being, you know, being prophesied in Isaiah 7 verse 14, that he'd be born of a virgin, to the star in the sky of Bethlehem in Numbers 24, 17, to the choir of angels just singing upon his arrival, to the life he lived, just perfect and sinless, the miracles being full of grace and truth. He truly was wonderful. But not only that, the next word comes to his heart. It's, it's counselor. Like it says in Colossians 2, verse 3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that he would contain all of it. And the next thing that gets impressed on Isaiah's heart regarding this child that was to be born was that not only would he be born of a woman, born of man, but that he was also none other than God himself made manifest in the flesh, mighty God. I can imagine the confusion actually that Isaiah has, that he sees this wonderful counselor and he's like, okay, I can understand that, but somehow he's, he's God. That's confusing, but I'm gonna write it down. <laughs> that he would be mighty God. He would be Emmanuel, God with us, the word made flesh. And further than that, it came to Isaiah that not only would he be God in the flesh, but he would show us the very nature of God as our everlasting father. Again, one of those, probably he's confused. He's everlasting. This child is going to be an everlasting father. Not some distant deity who just created us and pressed play, for his own amusement or entertainment, but a near, close, loving, gentle, kind, strong, everlasting father who would never leave us nor forsake us. And lastly, Isaiah would see that this child that was gonna be born, this mighty God would be the one who brought peace to our hearts. And the Prince of Peace comes to his mind. And like it says in Ephesians 2.14, it says, he himself is our peace. In Colossians 1.20, he made peace with us through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, and so one after another, the rest of the prophets begin to fill in this picture of this Messiah. And it's not long before this whole mosaic comes together and we can see a very good picture of who the Son of God is and who he's supposed to be. The prophet Micah sees that there's this little town called Bethlehem where Jesus was to be born. In Micah 5, verse two, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Isaiah would then see the adoration of the Magi saying, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 60 verse three. Jeremiah pictures the death of the innocent boys in Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Hosea sees the flight to Egypt when Herod orders the death of the innocent boys. In Hosea verse 11, verse one, plenty of detail about his birth. But more than that, there's even detail about his life that some of the prophets were able to see even into his character and his work, the work of the Messiah. That the light that was to shine forth from Zion 
was to be for all the world, for the Jew and the Gentile. Isaiah 52, verse 10. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The prophet Joel saw that the spirit of God was going to be poured out on all flesh. Joel 2, 28. And Isaiah again sees Jesus in his meekness and his gentleness. Very unique attributes to a king as he walked this earth. Isaiah 42, verse 2. And when Jesus, if y'all remember this moment, when Jesus cleansed the temple with the money changers, he's like flipping tables and getting pretty, pretty mad. <clears throat> These, the words of the psalmist instantly come to the memory of his disciples, saying, zeal for my house consumes me. Psalm 69, verse 9. And Isaiah sees even further and finds this Messiah preaching good news to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted, and proclaiming liberty to the captives, and freedom for the prisoner, and giving the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah 61. I mean, that, if you've read the Gospels, that's exactly what he did. He preached good news to the poor. I mean, mourning turned to joy when Jesus came in the presence of death. Think of Lazarus. There was a woman bound uh, for 18 years with an infirmity, that was, she was loosed at one word of Jesus. He truly does, and he did set the captives free. Isaiah even pictures this precious scene as Jesus being the good shepherd, gathering his lambs in his arms and carrying them in the fold of his robe in Isaiah 40, verse 11. And then the prophet Zechariah sees this wonderful scene that causes him to burst out in song, and he writes it down. He says, Rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. So this idea of the Messiah coming and being a righteous, victorious, triumphant king was very much ingrained in the minds of the, the Israelites. Uh, but so much so that they only wanted to see that side of the Messiah. And so that when he came, they missed him because they missed his suffering. They missed his rejection and his lowliness. John the Baptist said that there stands one among you whom you do not know. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2 that had they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So they just didn't know. They were expecting him riding on a white horse but he came in on a lowly donkey. And so they missed it. And that's the thing though, they, they actually shouldn't have missed it because they had the scriptures. It, it wasn't like the, the prophets left that part out. There's great detail that, that refer to his suffering, his humility and his rejection. Isaiah would say in, in Isaiah 52 verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then the very next verse, he says this in verse 14, just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. And really all of the, ne the next chapter in Isaiah 53, Isaiah sees more of this, of uh, the mystery of his suffering. And he sees that this root that would come forth from Jesse <clears throat> would be a tender plant who would be rejected by Israel. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. And so as Isaiah continued to gaze into the future, he sees that this Holy One would be led 
as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, verse seven. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So, it did, so he did not open his mouth. And he even sees him dying a violent death. In verse eight, he says, he will be cut off from the land of the living. Which is, the prophet Daniel actually saw the same vision. In, in Daniel chapter nine, verse 26, he says, the Messiah shall be cut off and have no one. So it's laid out, it's there, but they missed it. But yet again, the prophets see a little bit further than just his life, his death, I mean, his, his birth and his life. They see even to his death, the manner of his death. The psalmist sees that he's actually to be, he will be betrayed by one of his own friends, by one of his own disciples. In Psalm 41, verse nine, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has, has lifted his heel against me. Zechariah tells us, tells us of the 30 pieces of silver that were weighted out for his price and even adds that it was cast back to the temple, to the house of the Lord, just like Judas did. In Zechariah 11, verse 12. And in chapter 13 of Zechariah, he even sees that the sheep would scatter when the shepherd would be smitten. The psalmist tells us of the false witnesses called to bear witness against Jesus. In Psalm 27, verse 12, Isaiah sees him flogged and spit upon. Isaiah 50, verse 6. The psalmist again sees the very way of his death by crucifixion, saying in Psalm 22, verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22 has a lot regarding the crucifixion of Jesus. I highly recommend you read that. I mean, I recommend you read the whole Bible, but if you need to start somewhere, you can, you can start there. It was also predicted that he would be counted among the criminals, but he would make intercession for those murdering him. That was predicted. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. And at one point, the vision of the psalmist becomes so clear that he even sees that those who pass by Jesus as he's being crucified begin to mock him. In Psalm 22, verse six. And he sees the soldiers even dividing up his garments and casting lots for them and then giving, them, giving him vinegar to quench his thirst. In verse 18 of chapter 22. And then with a <clears throat> prophetic ear, the psalmist even hears the cry of the Messiah in the last hour saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, verse one, and his dying words, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, verse five. These are all Old Testament scriptures, if you notice. John would tell us that the soldiers at the crucifixion went to the, the thieves that were to his left and right, and he would break, they broke their legs to quicken their deaths. But when he came to Jesus, he saw that he was already dead. And so instead, the soldier picked up a spear pierced his side and blood and water came, came flowing out. And this was all done that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Zechariah 12, verse 10, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Isaiah tells us that though they made his grave with the wicked, he was buried with the rich. In Isaiah 53, verse nine, meaning they intended to bury him where they buried the criminals, but was ordered otherwise at the request of Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19. So Jesus was laid in a rich man's tomb. So many details, so many that span centuries. But there's more. They, they don't go just to the crucifixion. 
The prophets even saw further than that into his resurrection and ascension and ultimately his final triumph. David sings in Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And Isaiah, again, after he preached, after he prophesied the humiliation and death of the Messiah, he closes that exact same prophecy, uh, chapter 53, with these remarkable words. Chapter 53, verse 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and proclaim his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their sins, their iniquities. Incredible. Just absolutely incredible. But even further back from the remotest past, as far back as we can go when it comes to the scriptures, the saints of old look forward to even events that were still to come in our day, meaning we, they, they have yet to be fulfilled. And of course, we're referring to the second coming of Christ. Enoch, if you remember him, seventh from Adam, he predicted the second coming. And Enoch in Jude chapter, or Jude verse 14 says this, it was about these people that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. And even Job said this in chapter 19, verse 25, yet as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth whom I shall see for myself. And Zechariah even had the vision of the Mount of Olives and the Lord standing there with thousands of his holy ones. And Zechariah verse four, chapter 14, verse four. The unity of the prophets coming together to bring forth this one picture fulfilled in Jesus is remarkable. Again, this is not like they were all in one century and they all had the same profession. They were, there were shepherds, farmers, military leaders, kings, spanning centuries and they all say the same thing they all point to the life of Jesus it's absolutely incredible and so what we've been saying here at Antioch is that Advent is <clears throat> about remembering Jesus's first coming and looking forward and anticipating his second coming and as the prophecies of the past have been fulfilled to the T so will also the prophecies of the future he will come again he will that's encouraging that gives me a lot of hope. You know, when, when we're reviewing the prophecies, or at least when I'm reviewing and I'm reading it, I see something of maybe one of the dilemmas the prophets had, and that is that <clears throat> they saw uh, these visions in perspective, meaning they couldn't really tell the, the distance of time that would pass between one and the other. In other words, when they saw his humiliation and death, uh, and they also saw his glory, it, to them it looked like one event, they couldn't tell the separation. It was like viewing a mountain range from afar. In the summer of 2019, my wife and I took our one-year-old at the time, Adeline, it was a great idea, to Central Asia uh, for like a two-week mission trip to visit the team and do some outreach. Um, it was a great, Adeline did way better than us when it comes to jet lag. We're like, 
uh, and she's just like ready to go. Um, but we stayed at this Airbnb, this little apartment, and right outside the window, miles and miles away, we see this gorgeous mountain range. I mean, it is, you don't see that in Texas. So it was like, it's real, you know? <clears throat> but later on in the week, we actually took a lift up to the mountains, just kind of a day off. And when I got there to the top, I realized, oh, those peaks that I thought were like all right there are actually separated by like miles, you know? But from afar, it just looks like one mountain range. And it's like that with the prophets. It's just like that. Uh, they cannot tell the immense distance of time which would separate one event from the other. And, you know, remember, God is not bound by time. I think we understand that. Uh, he created time. One day is like a thousand years to him, says in Second Peter. And so it kind of makes sense that as the prophet of God would get into his presence, that they would lose their sense of time. <laughs> and they begin to see things in light of eternity. Because in light of eternity, a thousand years really is just one day. It's, it's nothing. It's a vapor. And so this Advent season, we wanted to specifically highlight the prophecy concerning Jesus, his first and second coming, simply because we actually need it more than we realize. We, we, maybe we think it's just information or facts like history. Like, oh, okay, this is what happened. I know for me growing up, Knowing the story of Jesus, the prophecy, well, I didn't know the prophecies of Jesus, but I knew the stories of Jesus. But we need it more than just history. We need it because it serves as hope for us. We still live in a fallen, broken world with broken people, broken relationships. I mean, even the Bible says that all of creation is longing and groaning for that final day of redemption in Romans 8, 22. And so Christmas is a wonderful time, really, truly, to gather with friends and family and celebrate the birth of Christ. But there's a reality that in seasons like this, uh, for many people, they experience the brokenness of the world more than ever. Because there's someone who's not there because of a tragedy, maybe. There's tension where there should be unity, or there's bitterness in relationships when there should be friendship. And so this season of togetherness actually reminds many people of how not together life is and can be very frustrating because something within us is like, it should be together, but it's not. And that makes me sad. And that's heartbreaking. And so there's a hope contained in knowing that one day that's not far off, Jesus will come back and restore everything. And that day is not far off. I cannot stress that enough. It's not far. I, I would argue that many of us think that 50 years from now is a long way away. Like when you're thinking about your life, you don't, you're like, oh, in 50 years from now, blank. You don't think that's right around the corner. It is right around the corner. Hear from me. A hundred years is right around the corner. It is not far off. Okay, think of the phrase, time flies, Right? Time flies. Why? Why do we feel that time is flying? There seems to be something within the heart of man that expects life to go on, right? To never end. Like, why would we not be perfectly content to live a certain number of years and then that's it? As the years pass, there's, the people feel this anxiousness about their lives and do all they can to extend their life, right? Why? The Bible gives us an answer. 
Because deep down in the very soul of man, we knew we were created for that. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, eternity was written on our hearts. Eternity. And so as the years go by and it looks like life is coming to an end, something within us protests and says, no, this should not be. And let me just say, that protest is right. It shouldn't be. We were created to live, to have eternal life with our heavenly father. But we fell into sin and it broke that relationship. And eternal life begins that moment, the very moment you put your trust in Jesus for righteousness and the, and the guilt of your sin is wiped away forever. That's when eternal life begins. It doesn't begin when you die. John 17, Jesus says this. This is eternal life. Verse three, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it starts at that moment. <clears throat> eternal life does. Uh, Ephesians 1 says God gives us this deposit the Holy Spirit, verse 13, guaranteeing what's to come. But the fullness of what's to come, the full inheritance of sons and daughters of the king comes when Jesus comes again. We have the deposit now, but there's a day when the perishable will put on the imperishable and death will be swallowed up in victory. And so when we experience the pain of a broken world with broken people, you may be one of those people, in broken relationships, the news of his second coming brings us hope. It brings us so much hope. Because it's when we are at our darkest hour that the light of prophecy shines brightest. And this, this holds true in scripture. That prophecy appears when things are looking pretty gloomy. Even from the very beginning. At the fall of mankind. Remember I mentioned this. At the very beginning when man fell and disobeyed God, that prophetic word came forth that this great deliverer would come from the seed of a woman. Israel's bondage, their, their sin, their bondage resulted in the call of the great deliverer Moses to set them free. The prophet Samuel was raised up only in response to Israel's rejection of God as king. The idolatry of the kings of Israel brought forth the prophecies of Elijah and Elisha. My point is this, it's when God's people found themselves in a dark spot, usually of their own doing, that the light of prophecy appeared. <clears throat> And prophecy is therefore always connected to hope. And I, I would argue that maybe the main purpose, maybe the entire purpose of prophecy is to give us hope. Maybe that's the entire purpose. Peter puts it this way. Second Peter chapter one, verse 19. We have this prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I'm gonna read that one more time. We have this prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This prophecy is a lamp that brings light to the room. But there is coming a day when we won't need the lamp. Why? Because the day will dawn. And the sun will rise and the light of prophecy will no longer be needed. You can turn off the flashlight because it's morning. <laughs> That's what Peter's saying. But until that day, prophecy serves as a light to guide us. You know, if you're walking in pitch darkness and you're going somewhere, you might lose hope. You might not have enough courage to go on. <clears throat> but if you have a light, 
a lamp, a flashlight, you can, you can press on, right? Like I said in Romans 15, right? It serves as a encouragement that we might have hope. It's like the star of Bethlehem leading us onward to the day we meet our king face to face, not swaddled in, a, in cloth, wrapped in a manger, swaddling cloth this time, but riding on a white horse, coming surrounded in glory. That is a bright light. I mean, that is a huge light that will see us through the night until that, that day dawns in our hearts, until Christ comes again. Let me finish reading that verse in Revelation 19, verse 10, that testament of Jesus' spirit of prophecy. I'll pick it back up in 11. <clears throat> verse 11. Well, verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Verse 16, and, he, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's go ahead and get the band. Come on up. Y'all can go ahead and stand. Wrap it up here. <clears throat> the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I feel like there's this misconception regarding prophecy, maybe. I'm sure there's plenty, actually. Not maybe, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I'll say this, if you really want to be a prophetic people, we pray that, we want to be a prophetic people, then just as a people, we need to ask God for foresight to see into the future. And not just the future like tomorrow or next year, but the ultimate future. Be able to see that future. Tell others about that future. Be able to see the second advent of Christ. Let me ask you this. Why was John the Baptist called the greatest prophet of the Old Testament saints? The greatest. Jesus said that himself in Matthew chapter 11. Because what was in his heart, what was on his lips, was the advent of the Messiah. The coming of Christ. He preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. He used his voice to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make ready a way for the Lord. Make his path straight and one day all shall see the salvation of our God. Luke chapter 3. So, no wonder, at least to me, no wonder he was called the greatest. Because his eyes were fixed on that day. He was laser focused on getting people ready for Jesus. So yeah, he was the greatest, for sure. It wasn't about the miracles. It was about who do you proclaim. Can you see far enough to that final day to proclaim that day? So don't sell yourself short of being a truly prophetic people by going just to the gift of prophecy and no further. Hear what I'm saying. 
The gifts of prophecy are incredible. We need more of it. Getting words of knowledge, getting prophetic words of encouragement for others, invaluable. We need more. But go further. Go further still. 1 Corinthians 14 says, all can prophesy. In verse 31, all can prophesy. Because anyone can encourage and comfort, can share a word. But I would also argue anyone can see that day and prophesy of his coming. All can prophesy. Indeed, we can all testify of Jesus' coming and his return. So let me finish by reading you the last recorded words of Jesus to the church. No, it is not go and make disciples. It's in Revelation chapter 22. He says this, Behold, I am coming quickly. Yes, I am coming quickly. And the church's response to him in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That is a prayer of a mature church, of a church that's ready, who can say, I know I can pray about next week. There's an event coming up. There's this, there's intercede for that. Yes, amen. But when you can say the deepest cry, the, the prayer that's in my heart is, Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, you're ready. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, that day is coming. It is coming soon. So as we just close up, we won't have ministry, uh, the prayer team come up. I know we've been doing that a lot. We'll get back to that. But I do feel like just this sense of reflection right now <clears throat> for everyone, the band will play but I just invite you to reflect on your life. Maybe even, I don't know, use your imagination for, for good. You know, like sanctified imagination. P picture you're on your deathbed or something. I don't know. But just that day is right before us. And I would just ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, say, Lord, search me and know me. Am I ready for that day? And if not, make me ready. Make me ready to where I find bursting out of my mouth spontaneously is come Lord Jesus not some other request those are great but in this moment I'm asking ask for that 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 cry where the spirit and the bride the church say come even so come Lord Jesus Maranatha that's the the series this is what it's about this is what the church lives for if you don't believe me again read this they live for this day all your accomplishments in life, <laughs> they're going to be measured by the standard of Christ. That's what's going to matter. So we say, come, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for the promises in your word. Thank you that one day you will fulfill all things, and that you will restore all things, that you will wipe away every tear. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more death. For death will be swallowed up in victory. Jesus, we pray that you would baptize us right now in your Holy Spirit. That we would truly be a prophetic people. Be able to see, not just next year, the next 10 years. But to that final day when we see you coming on the clouds. And let the cry of our hearts be, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, you are coming. Behold, I am coming quickly, you say. So Lord, we say come. Make us ready. Spirit of God, sanctify us every area of our life. We pray that you would 
shine a bright spotlight from heaven on any area that doesn't reflect the glory of God. We want to reflect your glory, be a light into all the world. Come, Lord Jesus. This Christmas, we worship you for your coming and your coming again. We set our eyes on you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.